says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. And being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many who were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue now in our worship that you would just prepare us each individually and accordingly by your spirit that we could genuinely, Lord, have a heart that wants to receive what you want to plant into it and an ear that's open to what you want to say to us through the word of God this morning. We believe you're a God who speaks. And so we ask, Lord, that you would communicate to our hearts through the word of God and that you would speak to us. Bless your word. You know what we're asking and what we need, Lord. We ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it doesn't take long to realize that a part of this life is facing obstacles and not just facing obstacles, but learning how to overcome obstacles. And if you do not learn how to embrace the reality that you are going to face obstacles, challenges, difficulties, and to learn how to overcome those things personally rather than letting them overcome you, it's going to be a very difficult life. And in the same way, it is true as well that part of serving Jesus is facing spiritual opposition. That if you genuinely want to walk with Jesus Christ, I'm not just talking about being saved and then hiding your salvation and kind of being a couch potato Christian the rest of your life. I'm talking about if you genuinely want to walk with Jesus Christ, serve Jesus Christ, live for Jesus Christ, then it's important that you accept the reality that you're going to face spiritual opposition. That you're going to face things that are going to oppose you and make it difficult to really follow Christ. And you also have to learn how to overcome that. You have to learn how to overcome spiritual opposition. That it's going to happen, but you've got to learn how to navigate it and overcome it rather than letting it overcome you. And that's really what this passage teaches us about. It teaches us about facing spiritual opposition, learning how to overcome that. 
by the power of God's Spirit. The backstory, remember, as we kind of keep kind of carrying along here, right outside of the temple, Jesus has just performed an incredible miracle. A man who had been paralyzed from birth was actually healed by the Lord Jesus through the ministry of the servants, Peter and John, that he chose to use. And that crippled man who everybody knew as being paralyzed from his earliest days, who was there begging at the temple, when he was healed, he jumped up and said he was leaping and praising God, went into the temple with Peter and John, and he caused quite a stir. And everybody in the crowd was amazed at what had happened. And they began to be curious how and what had happened. And they started to look at Peter and John. And we saw last time that Peter very quickly denied any credit or any glory for the work of God. And he used the occasion to identify that it was Jesus who had done something powerful to bring about a life change for this man. And he then used that platform of the crowd paying attention and being curious to speak about who Jesus was, we saw. And he spoke about how Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the one that God had predicted he would send into the world, the Lord of all. And he came as the prophets predicted he would, that he suffered and he died on the cross for the sins of mankind, that he rose again out from among the dead and that he was alive and that he was coming again. And Peter spoke about these things to the crowd that was listening. And then he called them to respond. We saw in chapter three there in verse 19 when he said, repent, therefore, and be converted so that your sins can be blotted out. And he called them to respond to who Jesus was in light of what he had done. And then if you look at the end of chapter three, verse 26, Peter concluded his statements by saying to you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus sent him to bless you. How? In turning every one of you from your iniquities. So it seems that Peter said those things and perhaps that even Peter and John continued to carry on and maybe some more explanation and teaching because we notice now the plural reference verse 1 of chapter 4 now as they spoke so it seems maybe perhaps some further dialogue went on maybe they were explaining more of how to be saved and what it meant to follow Christ and be a Christian so verse 1 of chapter 4 now as they spoke to the people the priests the captains of the temple and the Sadducees it says came upon them and being, verse 2, greatly disturbed, take note of that, that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So notice, these established religious leaders that day are angered. It says greatly disturbed. They are enraged of these two men proclaiming Jesus as Savior and Lord and saying that Jesus is alive out from among the dead and has now come back to life. And notice in verse 1, if you would with me, who is foremost bothered, the Bible tells us, and sought to oppose these servants of the Lord Peter and John. First of all, we take note in verse 1 that part of that group that was angered and opposing them, it says, was the priests. Now, the priests, understand, held established positions as the spiritual leaders in God's house, in the temple. These were the established religious leaders of the day. Their role as priests was supposed to help people spiritually, to guide and lead people into the truth. It was their function by calling 
to lead and assist people in the worship of the Lord and their responsibility to help people know God and come into a relationship with God and deepen in their uh, fellowship with God to draw nearer to the Lord. Yet, notice, though they held that position, they were failing to perform their primary function. Their position was to help people know God. Their position was to help people know the truth, help people to worship the Lord, and they're completely failing in the very purpose for which they held the position and the title and the role and the function they were supposed to fulfill as priests. It actually tells us they were angered by others trying to help people know God. It literally says there in verse 2, they were greatly disturbed. Why? Because people were being told not to necessarily follow them as priests or follow their religious system, but instead they were being pointed directly to Jesus. They were being pointed directly to the Lord and this actually enraged and upset these religious leaders that people were saying, listen, the way to be right with God isn't through a person that's religious or a system that's established among religion, but it's through just going directly to Jesus. You need to go to Jesus. And this actually disturbed these priests and religious leaders, those disturbed as well. Secondly, we see in verse 1, it says, were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were an elite religious group, a much smaller segment than the Pharisees, who we see many times in the Gospels. And the Sadducees were very liberal in their theology. You might say they were the liberal theologians of their day. They did not believe in angels or the spiritual realm or the afterlife. They did not believe in people raising back from among the dead. Uh, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, excuse me, were, were very progressive in their liberal theological beliefs. They, they, it kind of led to, unfortunately, a deterioration in their spiritual and moral thinking. They were a very wealthy group of individuals, very political, and they compromised standards of morality, again, which would make sense because they did not believe in anything beyond this world. They didn't believe in angels or spirits or resurrection or an afterlife. So because of that, that led to no real concern about eternal accountability. <laughs> So you could pretend to be religious in this life, but honestly, you're never going to have to face anything in an afterlife. So it led to a very compromised liberal viewpoint in their theological beliefs. And that's why it says they were greatly disturbed, verse 2, that they preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. See, they were telling people there's life beyond the grave. And that contradicted their theological beliefs because if Jesus is alive, then it also means that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is actually judge. And that one day you're going to have to stand before Jesus and give account for your life. And they didn't like to hear that. And many don't like to hear that. So this disturbed them. It caused a sense of accountability. The one other person we see there in this moment, which leads to the next step, is the captain of the temple. And that's a reference to like the high-ranking temple officer. This was like the temple police, the temple security guard. Isn't it interesting? They, they, in the temple, if you were going to resist what happened, they, they had their own little security force there if you were a troublemaker in the temple. And to, to this day, the troublemakers in the temple are people actually telling people to follow Jesus. And, and so the, the people, get the temple police. They're telling people to follow Jesus. They're not telling people to follow us anymore. 
And so the, the captain of the guard is there being greatly disturbed at this preaching and teaching about Jesus as they come upon them. And look what happens, verse 3. And they laid hands on them. And that was not for prayer, I assure you. <laughs> they laid hands on them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, Peter and John at this point are literally being arrested as violators of the law for speaking about Christ. They're taken into custody as prisoners. It says there, verse 3, they're held overnight. And the reason is because it was against Jewish law to hold a trial in the evening. So that's why they're held overnight in custody, imprisoned until the next day. And here we begin to see in the book of Acts persecution happening against Christians and against the church. The reason for just simply proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Savior and that he's Lord and that the way of salvation is through him for simply speaking that truth, teaching, if you would, the word of God, the persecution begins to come. Jesus said in John 15, 20, forewarning his followers, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute also you. And we see from this point forward, we'll see in our study in the book of Acts in the early church, this continual pattern in church history. It will continue throughout the centuries and it continues in great intensity even to this day in different forms and fashions, whether it's literal physical danger and threat and the you know, terrorist groups or, uh, you know, taking people's lives literally for being followers of Christ or whether it's just in a very anti-Christian rhetoric and attitude and spirit that permeates a culture where basically you can have tolerance for anything else and you must have tolerance for anything else. But as soon as you bring up the name of Jesus or Christian ethics or anything along that line that corresponds with what would be fundamental Christian beliefs, people are angered and irate. And it almost seems like there's almost this proactive effort sometimes to almost intentionally do what can be done to oppose any of that from spreading. And so, listen, this can come at the, the, the blade of a sword and this can come in just the rhetoric of college professors and people in political positions. This can come in so many forms. And so here we begin to see this happening. Why? Because the devil despises the faithful proclamation of Jesus Christ and who he is and the salvation that he offers. So the devil orchestrates opposition and that comes about through persecution by men. It comes about by opposition and resistance by what people do against true followers of the Lord. What's sad here is notice, if you would, the primary persecution is coming from where? The established religious system. It's not even coming from the secular world. This is coming from the organized, established religious systems of the day. They are the primary ones at this point being opponents of coming to know Jesus as people should. Well, despite the persecution and opposition to the ministry of Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel message of salvation through Christ and the resistance to the teaching of the word of God, look at verse 4 says, it says, however, and that's God's however, however, Many of those who heard the word believed 
and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So notice, despite the spiritual resistance, the power of the gospel message, Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for the gospel, that message of salvation in Christ. He says, it is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who will believe it. The word of God, the Bible tells us, is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And the power of the gospel message and the power of the word of God, notice here, it still bore fruit. Despite the resistance, despite the opposition, the, the, the resistance didn't stop, the persecution, but in the midst of it, the word of God, the gospel message still bore fruit. Here you have recorded in verse 4 another spiritual harvest taking place of souls. It says, many, however, who heard the word believe. That implies salvation. That they believed upon Christ, that conversion happened as Peter had called for it, as we saw in chapter 3. And they responded and exercised their faith to experience the forgiveness of their sins and salvation in Christ. And at this point, it tells us, verse 4, the numbers among the early church in men alone was upwards to around 5,000 people. So again, we see this very fast, expansive growth now happening as the Spirit of God is moving powerfully. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is very powerful among the church. The preaching of the gospel in their community, people seem to not be able to resist telling people continuously about Jesus. It's just rolling off of the lips of these followers who are excited about the Lord and their community souls are being converted. And notice how it was happening. However, verse 4, it says, those who heard the word believed. This is how people came to salvation. Those who heard the word believed. They heard the words of the gospel message and the proclamation of the word of God. Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Can God use other things? Absolutely. But there is nothing God uses more efficiently than the proclamation of the Spirit-inspired Word of God. That's why when we share with people and we talk to people, look, we can generalize and say, hey, you know, Jesus loves you and I want you to know that Jesus died on the cross for you and Jesus rose. And, and that's true. Absolutely true. And we're all sinful and so therefore you might want to ask Jesus to forgive your sins and you can go to heaven if you open your heart. Those are all true, accurate statements. But that is going to be vastly different in its impact of what the Spirit of God does to generate faith in a person's heart. If you say to a person, there's no difference for we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And though the wages of our sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, same message. One's the word of God, which is God's word, so it's alive with power and spirit infused. The other is my summarization of the gospel message. And I don't say that to say that, oh my goodness, how am I going to remember scriptures? And so, my, my point is, is don't negate the value and the potency of using God's word. And when you deliver God's word, it has a much more, the seed impact is much stronger so those who heard the word were believing because faith generates the heart 
in the heart. Faith is generated in the heart when the word of God is heard. That's what prompted people to believe. And we are called as servants of the Lord to proclaim his word. That's why he says in Romans 10 as well, how shall they hear unless someone preaches to them? And that word preach doesn't mean to stand behind a pulpit. It just speaks of proclamation that we all can, in a sense, be preachers of the gospel and the word of God by in conversation and talking to people, just proclaiming the truths of God's word to people. Yet the believer has to understand that you're talking about the eternal destiny of people's souls now. So that's going to come with a measure of resistance because there's a spiritual realm of darkness against the spiritual realm of light. So we come back to Peter and John, verse 5 here, being held in custody overnight for the preaching of Christ. So the next day comes to pass, it says, on the next day, that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many who were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together now at Jerusalem. So this description here, verses 5 and 6, is referring to a religious delegation. Notice, gathering together. It says they're in Jerusalem and what's being referred to there is what we often call the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was basically in that day a 71-member religious supreme court, if you would. You know, picture our supreme court in our country and then picture like a, a very high-ranking, strong, political, powerful, religious supreme court. That's kind of what the Sanhedrin was. It was a 71-member religious supreme court in Israel that was basically 70 of the most elite religious leaders and then the high priest, whoever it was in that time period, that would gather together and decide matters. Notice it says there that there were the rulers and the elders, verse 5. That implies, again, respected religious leaders. So, again, this would consist of rabbis, and Pharisees, these were the very conservative uh, people towards the law of God and the customs that they implemented with how Moses' law was to be interpreted. Then you also had, as we talked about already, the, the Pharisees, or excuse me, the Sadducees implemented, the, the liberal theologians. There were uh, Sadducees and Pharisees as a part of the Sanhedrin. Then, of course, you had, as it's referred to there, as the scribes. And the scribes are those who would hand copy, literally, the word of God to pass it on from generation to generation so they knew God's word well. These were also the teachers of the word of God. And then we also have reference here to the priest as well as the high priest who was ruling at that time, we're told, verse 6, who was Annas and others, it seems, who were influential names being mentioned in there. Now, at this time, the Sanhedrin Council was very political in its operation. They had a lot of clout among the political system, even among Rome and influence. And that's why you see the reference to some other names in here, because sometimes, you know, things get a little cloudy in politics. And you have movers and shakers and people who have influence, and they may not even be a part of the council, but yet they're there, and, and they're, you know, political advisors, and they're kind of giving their input, you know, to those who are in positions of authority. So the Sanhedrin gathers for this session in Jerusalem with all their key advisors, verse 7. Notice what happens next. And when they set them in the midst of the Sanhedrin council, they ask them, by what power and by what name have you done this? Now, you have to put yourself genuinely in the sandals of Peter and John in this moment here. Here they are, Peter and John, and again, I don't mean this in a derogatory or critical sense. Peter and John are like two country boys from Galilee 
who have on their fishermen's overalls. And they're standing now right before the most elite religious supreme court of all the movers and shakers in that day in the society. And here they are with their fishermen's overalls and they're standing there and now they're going to undergo an official interrogation. And they're going to begin to be questioned and inquired. How did this miraculous work be done? They say, by whose power do you claim that miraculous work was done? Now, according to Deuteronomy 13, that was a legitimate question because that was how they would wean out false prophets. And if you claim someone else's name other than Yahweh God for a miraculous work, you would be put to death as a false prophet. So this is a legitimate question. So here's Peter set before these rulers. He's asked to give account for what he did. His life is on the line. And he's being asked this question, whose power and whose name did you do this in? And Peter has no time to consult a defense lawyer. He has no time to prepare his statements and get himself ready for how to answer. He's pushed into this interrogation and examination and he's forced to answer. But again, can I remind you, this is exactly what Jesus foretold the disciples was going to come to pass as they followed him. Let me remind you of Jesus' words from the Gospels. Listen to the words of our Lord. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpent and harmless as doves. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. But when they arrest you, and deliver you up when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say whatever is given to you in that hour speak that for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit now perhaps is that promise of the Lord in Peter's mind is this is all going on. This is exactly what, and is there there overnight or him and John talking about this is exactly what he said was going to happen. And so therefore believing the promise of God and having encouragement and the Lord fulfills his promise to Peter because the next verse, if you peek ahead, verse eight, what happens? It says Peter filled with the Holy Spirit and then he begins to speak and to give his answer. Because he's now filled with the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised he would. Man, how encouraging to know, whether it's Peter and John here or you and I, that when we're challenged spiritually or we're confronted spiritually, to know that in that moment the Lord doesn't abandon us. If we're being persecuted or somebody wants to dialogue, whether it's just they're genuinely curious or they want to you know, kind of interrogate you for what you believe, to know in that moment the Lord will help you. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, God can give you words that you could never come up with on your own to answer questions, to give explanations, whether it's being attacked or persecuted, arrested before a judge, or whether it's just you know, some, somebody attacking you in your school and mocking you, and, you know, in front of other fellow students or in your job, somebody beginning to persecute you. And a question that in that moment, the Holy Spirit can give you power and words to speak. And to communicate. And look, let me just say, especially if you're somebody who teaches, whether you teach in Sunday school and teach children or teach women or teach a home Bible study, those promises of Jesus are not for teaching. 
Don't say, well, I don't need to study. I don't need to prepare. I'll just get up and the Holy Spirit will tell me what to say. That's called, well, I almost said stupid. But now it came out. It just, and I'll repent later on. But sometimes, yeah. That's, this is dumb. It's irresponsible. You prepare and the Holy Spirit will anoint what you share and give you above and beyond. This is when, like Peter, you're put in a position and you have no opportunity to be ready and you're thrust into a situation. The Spirit of God comes upon you and fills you and enables you to share, to advocate on behalf of Christ, to speak what's true and to speak what's bold. So again, whose name are you doing this in? Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. So since they asked, Peter's not going to turn down the open door. Peter never has a problem speaking even before he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is Peter. They just you asked. Okay, you want to know what name I'm doing this in? I'll, I'll you know I'll give you an honest explanation according to Deuteronomy 13. This is who it is. And Peter boldly begins to direct attention and explanation for what happened miraculously to Jesus. And that it was by the power of Jesus. Notice again in verse 8 where Peter's boldness and confidence comes from. Was this just naturally that he was a courageous man? It says there in verse 8, there's the explanation, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Look, again, Peter was facing a very intimidating situation. That would have intimidated anyone. Even if he was a brave, hardworking fisherman, which Peter seems that he was, uh, irregardless of that, there's no way he would not have been fearful, intimidated, felt a little overwhelmed by the situation. Yet again, we find him doing what? Speaking very courageously with a sense of strong confidence and conviction as he talks about the Lord. And the reason the Bible shows us that in that moment, he had an experience with the Spirit of God. He was filled with the Spirit and that's why he spoke with such boldness and conviction. Again, we see in the Bible thus far, Peter already was indwelt with the Holy Spirit when he experienced conversion. We saw in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all the believers in that day and Peter was baptized with the Spirit and therefore the Spirit came upon him. And now here we are weeks, months later, and again, notice we see Peter, it says, again, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Greek there speaks of a, a fresh renewal. And what it's implying is that once again, the Spirit of God just came upon Peter's life. And we find recorded here, and we'll see it as we continue in the book of Acts, these repeated occurrences at various times and various reasons where people have a fresh experience with the Spirit of God where the Spirit of God just comes upon them in an outpouring periodically in instances where they are just infused afresh with the power of the Spirit to be able to serve the Lord in given circumstances. Again, Ephesians 5 tells us, and the language literally should allow it to be interpreted, to allow yourself to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in the passive present tense to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It literally means allow yourself to be being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And we do see this pattern in the Bible when the Spirit comes upon the life of a believer on repeated occurrences to just sort of renew and bring us under his influence once again in given moments when we need his power and his boldness to be effective. That's how Peter's able to overcome opposition. Not in his own strength. Oh, I'm facing, how do I overcome opposition? I got to grit my teeth and force my way through as a Christian? No. You need perhaps to say, Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? I can't do that. I can't overcome this. I can't overcome this opposition. I can't overcome this challenge I'm facing. I need the filling of your spirit, Lord. How does Peter have such boldness? Not through mustering up courage. The boldness came from the spirit. That's how, how was Peter effective? Not because he's a talented preacher. Because the spirit enabled him in what he did. That's how he's able to do this. And the same is needed for us. And we need to be sensitive to that and yield ourselves to the same thing as we see Peter experiencing. So Peter here, again, filled with the Spirit. And notice, he's respectful, but he uses very straightforward language. Peter says there, look, if we're being judged this day for a good deed done to a helpless man. Now, one would think, whether you're a religious leader, whether you're, you know, people in the society, everybody would think people would be cheering and happy. Wow, a man who was paralyzed, who was, in a sense, struggling his whole life and has become a burden to our society because he can't take care of himself and so others have to take care of him because of his severe medical... Wow, his life's been changed. He's been freed and he can live independently and do things he could never do. But you would think they would be incredibly happy, but instead, Peter says, pardon me for being judged for a good deed done to a helpless man who God changed his life, you would think people would be happy, but instead they're upset and trying to hold back and hinder God's good work among the community. Now, does that sound familiar? Seems like that goes on in the modern culture as well. People are actually upset that people are being helped in Jesus' name. Well, Peter doesn't hesitate to speak very directly about Jesus. See what he says in verse 10? He says, let it be known to you all that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by that, he says, this man stands before you whole. So notice, Peter speaks very directly the truth. He's not ashamed to just be very, again, he's respectful, but he addresses what's going on and he's not hesitant, he shares the truth. And notice the things he shares, first of all, that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. Now that's essential if people are gonna get saved. He also says there very clearly, you are guilty of sin. He says, you crucified him. You put to death the Messiah that God sent to us. That's called bringing people's sin to light and allowing them to experience guilt and conviction for their own wrongdoings in life. And he says, but the good news is, he says, God solved the dilemma. God raised him from the dead. And it's because of what God has done and what Christ has accomplished. Peter says, this man stands here before you whole. In other words, Peter's saying, look, we serve a God who sent his son so that broken people's lives can be changed and people can be helped and people can be made whole again. And referring to Jesus, going on, he says, verse 11, this, referring to Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. So Peter quotes from Psalm 118 which was a messianic psalm. All the Jews knew that in that day about the promised savior God was going to send. And he declared how when Messiah came, he would be rejected by those he was sent to. He uses this analogy here that God's word is 
uh, of a stone being rejected, which later becomes the chief cornerstone. Now, the chief cornerstone was the most important foundational stone in building processes. The chief cornerstone was the stone that really everything else was measured off of, everything else kind of put its weight upon and leaned off of, was built off of, you could say, like a foundation, and you measured everything else you did and built off of the chief cornerstone. It was absolutely essential. So to refuse the chief cornerstone was to build everything else improperly. You could keep building, but you were building in a faulty way and the pathway was going to result in things just falling apart because you built off of the wrong standard. And see, this is the picture of what would happen spiritually when Messiah came. God in advance said, look, when Messiah comes, when Jesus would be sent, God predicted he would be refused by those he was sent to. That he would initially be rejected and only later would they then realize that he was actually the very cornerstone for everything that they needed. And that they wouldn't see that until later on. Though God's son Jesus was the most important essential thing to building a spiritual life, he was cast aside. He was ignored. He was pushed aside as unnecessary. Jesus, interestingly, quoted this same verse from Psalm 118 when he was being rejected in his earthly ministry. Now Peter, taking Jesus' lead here in verse 11, he quotes the same verse and he personalizes it for this day. And he says there, look at it, he says, he was rejected by you builders. And Peter, ouch, you're the ones that actually rejected him. And he points it out very clearly. He says, you rejected the most important thing for a genuine spiritual life. And that's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Look, so important for us today to always remember God's intention for building and establishing a spiritual life is believing and knowing that Jesus is the chief cornerstone for a spiritual life. Peter is going to say in his own epistle when he writes a letter later on quoting from Isaiah, he's going to say 1 Peter 2, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him shall by no means be put to shame. So important, even as Christians, that we always remember Jesus is the foundation of a spiritual life. And what I mean by that is this. It's not about Christian ethics. It's about living for Christ. It's about serving Jesus Christ. It's not about upholding Christianity or church or promoting a church. Or It's, it's about serving Christ. The foundation for a spiritual life is living for Christ. It's not taking to yourself some Christian ethics and a Christian lifestyle. Everything is to be built off of establishing a relationship with Jesus and measuring things off of Jesus. Everything I determine, does my life measure up? Is the way I'm living right, right now? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of doing the Christian thing. I'm okay. No, the, the way you determine if you're doing okay is you measure life off of Jesus. According to Jesus, are you doing okay? Not according to Christian culture. Because I hate to tell you, a lot of what's called Christian culture is becoming countercultural to what following Christ really means. You measure your life off Jesus. He's the foundation. He's the one that's the standard that everything else depends off of. So Peter says this of Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And then he says, verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven, he says, given among men 
by which we must be saved. Now, that's what I call narrow-minded theology. I mean, that, that's somebody who believes in absolute truth. Peter wouldn't do well in our culture today. But nonetheless, he believed in absolutes. Remember, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the exclusive way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was very narrow-minded theologically. And Peter, therefore, knowing that with utter confidence, declares now the exclusivity of how to be forgiven. He says, there is not salvation from sin and hell and the punishment we deserve for our sin in any other, no other name, no other religion, no other religious. There's not multiple ways. He's, he's, there, no other, for there is no other name under all of heaven given among humanity, he says, by which we must be saved. Exclusive. Through Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the grave and did it for us and said, I exclusively am the way. Look, we shouldn't be upset that Jesus said, I am the way. We should be thankful there is a way. I don't know about you, but when I know I needed to be saved, I was, what do you mean? There's only one way? There's only one. I mean, that'd be like somebody who has cancer, finding out there's finally a cure for cancer going, what do you mean? There's only one way to be cured of cancer? Only one way? I was kind of thinking, you know, like a carrot juice combo with some kale chips. or like, I, just, I was, wasn't thinking that was going to be the way. No, there's a way. Be glad there's a way. The way's through Jesus. And so Peter here says, look, it's important because it's the way whereby, notice he says, we must be saved. Notice Peter's implication. Everybody needs to be saved. We all need to be saved because we've all sinned. We all have guilt in our lives and only Jesus can forgive our sin. Only Jesus can give us access into heaven and we must know that we need to be saved. Listen, let me just say to you, if you're here today and, and you're not saved and you're thinking you're just kind of okay and it's going to all kind of work out, I beg you by the mercy of God to understand you must be saved. You are a sinful person like every other person on the planet. You must, at some point in your life, be saved. You must come to Jesus knowing that and ask Jesus to forgive you and to save you. And Peter says he's the way to do that. Well, verse 13 says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men and they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. So, as they recognized the bold confidence how these men spoke authoritatively about Jesus, notice very clearly, verse 13, they saw it was not due to their superior training. It says right there in verse 13, they perceived they were uneducated, untrained men. The idea is they were not formally educated in any of the religious institutions of that day. They weren't taught by famous rabbis. They did not have the privilege and opportunity to be trained formally in programs of elite religious schools in Jerusalem under the direction of well-known theological scholars. These men did not receive training like that. They weren't educated in you know, uh, you know, astute institutions. Uh, they, were, they were never taught, they never had a class how to preach and teach effectively to persuade your listeners. These men had none of that. None of that was ever afforded and they lacked all spiritual education and formal religious and ministry training. That's why it says the religious leaders marveled at their spiritual confidence and the way that they spoke. They just, it was a shock to them. All they could take note, verse 13, see what it says? 
all they could do was they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's what they took note of. That the time they had spent together with Jesus relationally seemed to supply to them proper understanding of spiritual things and in equipping to be able to minister in an adequate capacity they had learned from Jesus and that actually became more sufficient to instruct and to help and do the purposes of the Lord than anything they could have gleaned from time spent in an institution to be effective. Oh, let me just say, there is nothing wrong, nothing wrong with receiving formal religious, spiritual, biblical education and teaching. I'm not opposed to that. There's nothing wrong with receiving formal ministry training, but thankfully, it's not required. <laughs> thankfully, it's not. That you can be used by the Lord even if you, like Peter and John, find yourself in the same position. If you don't have the privilege and opportunity, you can still be used by the Lord. There are plenty of wonderful ways informally to learn the word of God still, to be trained and equipped for ministry. The biggest key, if you want to be a useful vessel for the Lord, it's right there in verse 13. Make sure you've been with Jesus a lot. You spend time with Jesus a lot and you're in his presence and you stay close to the Lord, that my friends, will make you effective to serve Jesus. Spend time with him. Spend time with him. Let him teach you. Let him empower you. Become Christ-like. Learn his ways. Learn his heart. That will make you just as suitable to be effective as a minister and a servant of Christ in the different capacities he would want to use us. Well, verse 14 says, Seeing that man who had been there standing with them, they could not say anything against it. His life was changed. How do you dispute a changed life? You can argue theology, but you can't say anything against a life that's been changed. So verse 15, when they commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves. They put them out so they can dialogue, saying, what shall we do? They're perplexed. What shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it, they say. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no more in this man's name. So they're frustrated, perplexed, but notice what's their main goal. They just want to stop and hinder the spread of telling people about Jesus, of proclaiming the truths that are real about Jesus Christ. Their primary agenda is to stop the spread of the gospel. So they try and intimidate and demand. They no longer speak in the name of Jesus. They're going to use fear of consequences. If you keep doing that, they're going to threaten. There are going to be consequences for that. You're going to suffer if you keep that same process going forward, being honest and bold about Christ. So verse 18 says, When they called them in, they commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus of Jesus. So they use bully tactics and their authority to command them, notice, to do something in direct violation to a command of the Lord. Because remember what Jesus told them to do? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, that was Christ's command. Now they're facing, do we observe a command that came from heaven's throne or from the throne of a man? What do we do here? 
They're facing a legitimate dilemma, a sincere conflict. Follow human authority or God's. Or verse 20, Peter and John answered and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak in the things which we have seen and heard. So Peter literally is in a dilemma where he has to decide, do I obey God or do I obey a man? And he finds himself in this genuine conflict where he has to choose between listening to men or listening to God and he must decide to do what's right in the sight of God or do what's right in the sight of people. And Peter, thankfully, with boldness and courage, points out this is what you're doing. He says, look, you, you judge. Is this right, he says, in the sight of God? Would God be pleased with this? To listen to you more than God? He says, understand the position you're putting me in here. You're forcing me to decide, he says, to listen to you or to listen to God. And Peter, thankfully, makes the right answer. He says, verse 20, we cannot. We cannot do what you're asking because we must do what God has asked us to do. We must obey God rather than obey you. We must listen to God rather than listen to you. What a great example of courage and devotion shown by these servants of the Lord here when faced with a genuine conflict of obeying and pleasing men or obeying and pleasing God, they choose to honor the Lord. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't noticed, sometimes that same thing comes into our lives. Whether it's somebody trying to tell you not to speak about Jesus or share God's word anymore, or maybe somebody demanding or asking that you do something that is a direct violation of the written word of God. And you may find yourself and may even at some point find yourself facing that from someone who can bring consequences against your life if you don't do what they want you to do. And you and I may find ourselves in that spot. And you know, when we do, we must have the boldness by the power of the Spirit like Peter to say, you know what? We must obey God. We cannot do what you are asking in that situation. We must honor God. And look, as Peter takes that stand, look how the text concludes. It says, so when they had further threatened them, they then let him go finding no way of punishing them because of the people since they all were glorifying God for what had been done for that man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Notice as they sought to honor God, what did God do? He took care of things for them. They honored God. They did what was right in the sight of the Lord and because the crowd was celebrating and glorifying God over this miracle, they were in a quandary it says they found no way of punishing them because of all the people were glorifying God and they knew if they started punishing Peter and John for the miracle that had just happened in this man's life there was going to be a revolt and the people would be so angry so what does God do God uses the circumstances to protect and preserve his servants and to honor them for doing the right thing and this just reminds me God is never limited God can use any circumstance, any situation and turn it around for his purposes. The Bible says that we should remember that the fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts the Lord is safe. Hey, this morning, let me encourage you. Perhaps you're facing a situation and maybe you're going to be forced to decide or maybe it may happen this week and you may be forced to decide. Are you going to honor the Lord in that situation or are you going to honor another human being? That's a hard place to be sometimes. 
And when that happens, I think it's okay to be honest and to be honest with the human being that's perhaps putting you in that spot and say, look, you are forcing me to decide between honoring God or honoring you. That's the position you're putting him in. And in that moment, you know what you do? You ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You spend some time with Jesus. And you honor God. And you watch what God will do to work. He'll work out the circumstances. And he'll orchestrate what needs to be done. Let's stand together and pray.